Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. institutions of our society were created at a time when maximization was the dominant goal. Our government laws, businesses with new products, and even philanthropic organizations were built on a society that was supercharged with fossil fuels to get as big as possible as fast as possible. Now, with the challenges of the 21st century, resilience is a more appropriate principle for inventing and reorganizing our economic life. In this episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we talk with authors of The Resilience Imperative, Cooperative Transitions to a Steady State Economy, to explore different solutions that work around our human tendencies to co-opt and exploit by working together in cooperative movements designed with the sole purpose of furthering human well-being. Is it possible to have a society that doesn't devolve into selfishness and greed? And are there ways to guard against this most basic human tendency? So what do you think, Justin? Is it possible to have a society that doesn't devolve into selfishness and greed? And are there ways to guard against the most basic human tendency? As we're going to cover in today's episode, there's a range of different financial relationships, a range of different ways of owning homes, of banking, of organizing society and our institutions that can emphasize these cooperative elements inside every human instead of emphasizing the individual focused maximization that our financial and economic incentives today try to emphasize. And so we're speaking with the authors of The Resilience Imperative, Michael Lewis and Pat Conady. Mike's the director of the Canadian Center for Community Renewal. He's actually nearby where I live in Vancouver, BC, but he's internationally known for his work on community economic development. And then our second guest is the other co-author of The Resilience Imperative, Pat Conady. He's a fellow of the New Economics Foundation in the UK who researches community finance initiatives. And I actually caught up with him at a conference that was held in Calgary, Canada. We had a couple of hardware errors in the recording with Mike, and you might hear some hard cuts as it goes along, but it gets better about five minutes in, so stick with it. It's going to be really good. This is episode number 88 of The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Justin Ritchie. And I'm Seth Moserkatz. Get ready for a great episode. in these situations in Greece. People are desperate, so you got a means to exchange goods and services. This, of course, is not a response that is adequate. 
I think it's important to step back and say, how did this happen? When you listen to people talk about Greece, they're not paying their taxes, they're tax avoiders, living beyond their means. I mean, let's take a look. And, and let me just go back to Canada for a minute. Canada, between the mid-30s and 1973, created interest-free currency through the Bank of Canada. Now, think of the Bank of Canada. It's a wholly owned subsidiary of the government. What they did, and it worked really well, is that they created bonds. Interest was paid on those bonds by the government of Canada. And then the bank paid dividends back to the government of Canada. And the only cost to that was the administrative charge associated with that transaction. You know what we did with that? We fought a war. We financed the Trans-Canada Highway, financed the St. Lawrence Seaway, financed major airports across the country, and we put in place in the 60s the cornerstones for the social security system, all on an interest-free basis. And then the bank's right to compound interest. In a period of 18 years, we went from 37 billion being our national debt to over 400 billion. Now the impact of this, just think of what happened there. And you go to the 1993 Auditor General of Canada's report telling parliamentarians that the debt increase over that period, 85% of it was compound interest. Compound interest is absolutely, historically, it was banned by all the major world religions. Usury was not even possible. What it does over time is it squeezes where indebtedness continuously increases. The paradigm we're operating, you're paying compound interest. And where's it going? See, the quantitative easing essentially was a means by which the currency was being created and then it was being given over to the banks to repair their balance sheets. The difference is, and it's huge difference, in the 30s, the government was spending it directly into the economy. So that's what happened in Canada. It wasn't going to the banks because what happened in that process? They still had a credit crunch. They still do in Britain. Credit crunch is there despite the amount of money. So we got a problem structurally in the banking system. However, government spent it directly into those major infrastructure projects. We spent it in and it allowed them to continue to lend with a bigger pool of deposits. And it was non-inflationary. That's always the argument you're going to hear. It's going to be inflationary. Go back to Greece then. What's happened? What's happened? Uh, whole process of bundling up all of this indebtedness as mortgage-backed securities, at the end of the day, it collapsed of its own weight. What happened is then governments that bought those securities because of this corruption, what happened for certain governments is you got this effect that increased their indebtedness as they bailed out their local banks. When you think about the problem of economic growth and overshoot, think about what it means if 35% of the embedded costs in an economy are as a result of compound interest. Housing, all of the supply chains, all that stuff, 35% embedded in the cost. So what you're saying is when I go out and use my dollar to buy anything, whether it's a cup of coffee or whatever, it costs 30% more just because of the compound interest money system. 
That's exactly what. Moreover, in Germany, their calculation is the bottom 80% of the population, because of this fact, is transferring 600 million euro a day to the top 10%. So just think about this in terms of growth. Economic growth cannot, in a debt-based system, ever be sustainable. This is a problem, and debt is one of the drivers of growth, right? So this becomes systemically part of the problem. So let's talk about Sweden, the Jack Cooperative Bank. The Jack Cooperative Bank, as a matter of principle, ecologically, in terms of fairness and equality, moved to build a fee-based system of finance rather than compound interest. I won't go into all the details, but it's kind of a solidarity saving. So if I contract to continue saving, I get an administrative charge, but no compound interest. So in simple interest terms, it would translate into about 2.5%. Now, if you look at that amount, 2.5%, simple interest, and compare it to the average over the last 30 years in Canada, and that makes a huge difference, a huge impact. Think about housing and a mortgage. Average house today in Canada is $370,000. Put a 10% down payment on, you have a mortgage of $333,000. If you're paying on that mortgage for 25 years, what does that mean for the quality of life, for not just the dollars, but you think of life energy, how that shapes the pattern of our lives? No wonder we feel that we're on a treadmill that's going faster and faster and faster and faster. I think it's been very interesting to see that evolve as a model in Sweden. And it's also been used for enterprise financing, including up to $10, $20 million projects for windmills where people commit to save in order to finance the capital and working capital. So it's a type of solidarity finance. Now, there's many different ways of working at this, and there's different models. The Jack Cooperative Bank is one that gives you a really wonderful window into how these things fit together. The picking away at it, and you start seeing the linkages and seeing things differently. All of a sudden, what seems like a sane path forward doesn't necessarily compute anymore, does it? <laughs> it's very interesting that Basically, what you're describing, that treadmill where you're not going anywhere and you're having to run faster and faster and faster just to keep your head above water, sounds a lot to me like it's a form of debt slavery, a form of people you know, trying to support themselves in a, a lifestyle that they're accustomed to or that the media tells them that they're supposed to be accustomed to. And you know, they're, they're saving for their houses. They're trying to put money into a brick-and-mortar building that they think that they deserve. And you know, send their children to college. All these big expenditures that people think it is important to live in in the modern Western world. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we can go into a little bit about the ideas behind selling these things to people. About why people think it's important to make these investments in their lives. Why the people continue to play this game where it's just they they are running into nowhere. Maybe you could go a little bit into that. You're asking a deep kind of cultural question. In the 12th chapter of the book, the title of that chapter is an interesting one, From Cultural Captivity to Focused Intention. But I think it's attempting to speak to your question, Seth. What's the nature of the cultural captivity? Well, in part, 
in historical terms, we are in the latter stages of enclosure. Now, what I mean by that is enclosure started around 500 years ago with throwing people off the land to make room for sheep in order for the English cotton mills to be able to become more and more dominant and to move out across the globe. Uh, all process of movement from charters that were given public and obligations associated with them. That has become culturated into thinking that perhaps this socially constructed reality is reality. Yet all through that entire history, there's been resistance. <laughs> there's been resistance to land enclosure. In the United States, it was impossible. Citizens gave the charters to companies. There was one period in Pennsylvania where 10 bank charters were revoked by citizens' councils in one year. They were not going to let the revolution they just been through and getting rid of the East India Company and the British government to be all of a sudden take over by a bunch of homegrown folks. So from the time the United States became a union till the 1830s, where incrementally that system started to be undone, to the point where in 1888 you had a Supreme Court ruling in the United States where, where the corporations argued, uh, I think it's your 14th Amendment, I'm not sure, that then gave personhood to slaves. They used the same thing to get personhood for <laughs> the corporate entity. So it's been a long, long struggle, and really the kinds of things we talk in our book about are an extension of that. Now get this. Think how this might shape our assumptions about what's real. How many human hours of energy needs to be expended to make one barrel of oil? 25,000 hours. That's 12 years at 40 hours a week. That extension of human power by borrowing from ancient sunlight is huge. And that has shaped what we think is real, but we're just rapidly using up a precious resource which has no substitute in its flexibility or its power. Oil, I'm talking about here, it doesn't exist other than the fact that it is a product of the evolutions of hundreds of millions of years of history. And we are using, and have used over half of it, we know for sure, in 150 years, a blink of the eye, right? It's just amazing. You mentioned something there that was really fascinating about how U.S. citizens could actually reject the charter of a corporation. Communities could actually say, you violated the rules of our community, you can no longer operate. Yeah, essentially, uh, instead of the sovereign, the citizens' councils had a major role to play. Now, it was intermediated by the state, depending on the nature of the corporation. But what it did is it reasserted that corporations should operate only within the context of their ability to produce goods and services in a way that created public benefit and protected public interest. Really, the corporate reform movement today is the same. But if you tell people what I'm saying now, and I do it in public, that their version of reality, that you get hammered over the head with neoliberal kinds of discussions about the holiness of private property and, and the free market and try and re-embed social goals or ecological reality into the heart of our economic life, that's considered radical. But what is really radical is just the opposite. 
because the reality is that we cannot divorce ourselves of the economic social obligation. I wanted to ask about navigating into an economy that does take into consideration resilience and our ecological systems. And as Seth was just saying a moment ago, our cultural programming is so strong and we're so locked in through media, which focuses attention on particular economic data points about GDP. And then every story seems to be framed around whether it's contributing to GDP or not. And in this neoliberal model that controls the minds of those making policy, of even the way we see ourselves in relation to the world, which you were just discussing, there are a lot of people who would say that we aren't going to make a successful transition. Do you think there is a reasonable pathway towards a transition rather than just some kind of series of cascading breakdowns and that we really can pull off a transition? Let me just say a couple of things, and it goes back to the culture question. We think of ourselves as consumers. We have a sense of entitlement, which is creating carbon emissions. So what are the pathways? So let's take food, okay? So food produces almost 20% carbon emissions in the world. How do we deal with this? Well, look at the whole global food chain. Pesticides, fertilizers, pumping irrigation, freezers, which are sucking energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is a huge impact from urban point of view. So how do we move off of that system? Well, clearly, it's possible to do it locally and regionally. We show example, for instance, in Japan of the Saikatsu Cooperative, which started really with a fair price principle and ecological growing methods and having the food sourced and processed and distributed within the local and regional area. That today is kind of 32 federated cooperatives from across the country that have a distribution system that is all based on a fair price to farmers and ecological growing methods and greening the entire value chain from the point of view of carbon reduction and so on. The consumer, it's a consumer-driven movement. Consumers, the idea here is that consumers are seeing themselves as co-producers and co-investors in transforming the food system. That's a cultural shift that is fundamental. It shows the direction that we can have. We have the seeds of doing that through the innovations that led to the Saikatsu Cooperative. Decentralized, rather than this broad fossil fuel, oil-soaked food supply that we have that are all based on monoculture. So we can see this unrest, and we can see the interest growing, and we can see the markets growing start to integrate and resonate with social values, mediating points in the relationship to production and to strengthening community. Out of our own interest, a food supply that's more secure than one that's constantly in trouble, and we can already see that. I mean, we've seen the food riots. Prices are going up now because of the drought. These are not going to go away. So we've got to figure out these kinds of signpost models that are resilient. that show pathways to transition, localizing the production, they're democratizing the relationship between consumers and producers. Why would they do all this? The way in which they see this, here's a cultural statement. It's a food supply that's healthier to reduce carbon and advance their ecological goals. And get this, to exercise their democratic autonomy as citizens. You made some really interesting points, and I'd like to step back a second. You said 
that one gallon of oil is equal to about 25,000 hours of man labor. Is that correct? No, one barrel. One barrel of oil is, is equal to about 25,000 hours of labor. So you think about that and you kind of extrapolate that into our current economy and, or into our current society, our culture, and you can think about the amazing amount of power that that gives to humans and then the ridiculous i i can almost almost say deformity it does to our brains it just makes us be able to live in a fairy world you can it's like taking a mass drug it's like everyone in our culture is taking huge amounts of <laughs> the oil drug <laughs> yeah and it, and then it also you know it gives us lots of goals that are never before had in the history of our civilization. You know, our great, great, great grandfathers never, ever believed that they could do the things that we're doing now. We take for granted on a daily basis. And in the same vein of, of that thinking, we've moved away from the things that really have let us be sustainable on this planet for so long. You mentioned farming. You mentioned growing our food. Right now on this planet, a very, very tiny percentage of the people that used to grow food actually do now. And the actual tiny percentage of the people who grow food for the rest of the world, it's a very small percentage. You mentioned some local movements of growing food. You mentioned permaculture. We've, we've done a whole show on permaculture and how you can change and make it something that's totally renewable. The average age of a farmer right now in Canada is 52. Japan, 66. Who's going to grow a food when those people aren't, aren't around anymore? And how can we make farmland something that's affordable to somebody to, to invest their time and their resources in. So you're raising some really interesting questions. I think just a couple of qualifiers at the beginning. One is that if I recall the number properly, that the amount of land that is being grown more intensively and using methods is growing year on year on 29 million hectares, I think, globally. And that within that, the yield per unit is higher than industrial agriculture and, of course, much less fossil fuel intensive. And just wanted to make that point. And permaculture, of course, is a hugely productive system of transforming landscapes, and, and not just at the backyard level, but whole entire landscapes. Anybody that goes and looks for before and after pictures on permaculture will see some of the most amazing things that they couldn't believe is even possible. So who's going to grow our food, and how do we deal with the blockages and access to land? This brings in land reform, which is basically, and this is relevant to housing and affordability. It also relates to agriculture and food growing. It relates to workspace. It relates to community energy systems. You've got to deal with land. If land's in the market, you've got a problem. <laughs> what we have is a private property system that is taken the we and made everything the I. And what our job is, is how do we re-renite the we with the I? So let's take a look. I've lived on a farm for 34 years. Not, I'm not smart enough to be a farmer, but I've lived on a farm. I'm, I can milk cows and scrape shit. I'm pretty good at it. What I wanted to say is that there's a crisis, and how do you transfer the land? That's your point. How do you make it available? Here you've got farmers that are asset-rich and cash-poor, and they think about how are they going to sell? Or how, how are they going to live? They've lived a lifetime. They've worked like hell. And in B.C., we've got some protection for farmland. But even the protection for farmland here, what you're seeing is people with a lot of money that are buying rural estates. They're buying out farmers, and then they're not farming anymore. <laughs> the farmland's protected, but nobody's farming it, right? 
Whereas in the United States, you've got a huge problem where farmland is eaten up by expansion and urban development, or it's being appropriated by land grabs from China, Saudi Arabia, Korea. There's a number of countries that are involved in this all over the world, including parts of Canada where Saskatchewan, there's large land acquisitions by offshore companies. How do we deal with this? One of the ways of dealing with it that was actually innovated in the United States through the Schumacher Institute and Bob Swan and Susan Witt, they created a mechanism known as community land trusts, which are not as well known in Canada as they are in the United States, where they're quite advanced in terms of their use for housing. And what they did is they had essentially one of the first community-supported agriculture groups in the States associated with a farm called Indian Line Farm. It was a small farm. I mean, we're only talking about 22, 24 acres, but very productive. And they had this community-supported agriculture. And the man died who was farming it, and the children did not want to farm it. And the question became, how are we going to deal with this question of succession? So you had a local market, these CSA members, about 160 of them, and they got in touch with the Conservation Land Trust, and they decided that they were going to put a conservation easement on this property, which essentially would then protect the land in perpetuity for farming. So they did that. They raised the money. They paid the first round of money to the children as a result of this mobilization of solidarity and local financial resources by people who campaigned for that, including co-invested themselves. That then created the basis upon which they then transferred the land to a community land trust. And the community land trust, it basically had a covenant on it that said, we are going to protect this land in perpetuity, and we are going to use it for a new generation to enter this farm and produce, which they did. They recruited. They structured a 99-year lease. The lease was structured to make it easy, capitalizing the land. On that, he could go to the credit union or the bank, the new farmer, and finance the house and whatever equipment he wanted to use and the barn. Voila, you've got a whole different land tenure that essentially puts the land into a community benefit non-profit, multi-stakeholder organization with the mandate and the legal responsibility to steward land for that purpose. And you've got a means by which that intergenerational transfer took place in a way that mobilized the community as co-investors, provide the means by which then the broader community could increase its food security and preserve that part of the landscape by virtue of having a reasonable financing. And I think there's a lot of farmers. I'm not saying all farmers, but I look at my former father-in-law. These people have worked like hell. They want to see what they've stewarded continuing to be stewarded, but between a rock and a hard place. This is a real problem that is not going to go away. Now, that's a really fascinating model for how we can help to make the next generation of agriculture possible for youth. And there are many youth interested in farming. We were just at a Slow Money conference later last year, and we saw so many people under 30 interested in the future of our food system. But I wanted to talk about the model of development that we've had for so long. And if you are an economic development officer for a city, 
you might have the particular idea of how to catalyze economic growth in your region. So in Vancouver, the idea is to build lots of high-value real estate like luxury condos, or maybe you want to use extreme tax incentives to bring in a big-name global corporation. Um, so Mike, if you were sitting down with an economic development officer for a city who might be somewhat receptive to thinking differently, what would you say to them? What would be some steps they could start taking to uh, build a more resilient local economy? Affordable housing here in Vancouver was kind of an oxymoron, to say the least, uh, uh, because this is the least affordable city. But it comes at the heart of the same question. Uh, task Force had a number of multinational property developers. I talked community land trust, land reform to these guys. I'll tell you, it was countercultural, <laughs> to say the least. And I said to these guys, what are you talking about? You say that supply is going to have an impact on the cost of housing in this city? Prove it to me. I'll prove to you how the private land market, the way it operates here, is essentially taking money and opportunity out of the community and public interest and put in private pockets. That's at the individual household level, it can be, but even more so at the corporate level. This does not work. And I used a good example, and here's an example. Ken Livingston was the mayor of London, England. Taxpayers assembled $3.5 billion to put in a new line, borrowed, and then paid back through user fees. Now, a thousand yards on either side of that line, property values as a result of that line went up $15 billion. Many of the owners for those properties were offshore. So here we have a public investment for community benefit being made in the sum of $3.5 billion, and $15 billion gets put in the pocket of individuals or corporations. And then people talk about the spendthrift ways of the government, and they better tighten their belt or raise taxes or cut services. You see how it works? I mean, this is nuts. So, in a sense, the economic development treadmill is part of the growth ideology. But we need better ways of mobilizing local finance for local investment. We're seeing some of that in Vancouver through institutions like Van City, where they are positioning our financial resources that are invested there, which is about $17 billion in Van City in terms of assets. And becoming much better at reinvesting. So the partnership between groups like Van City is a really important piece. I'll give you one example. When I introduced this land trust and we got it through, that opened up some political space. And then what happened is that the staff were more aware, number one, and also were in a position to begin to look at the landscape a little bit differently. You know, we've got a real rental problem in the city. They wanted to get a bunch of stuff out. They put out a letter of interest to everybody. All the developers came back and said, oh, yeah, you just give us the land. Because actually, Vancouver owns quite a lot of land. The city had no one else to go to except the developers, private developers, who essentially built 22% margin into their projects. So Van City and the Co-op Housing Federation of B.C., and a group called Terra Housing Consultants, which are among the most experienced in terms of nonprofit and cooperative housing, they created the Social Purpose Development Partnership. Real estate with social and ecological purposes written right into it. Well, we got 
all of a sudden, a development company made up of civil society and the social economy trying to reinsert social purpose. So what happened? They put in a letter, and the city went right away and said, oh, forget about the other guys. We're going to go with these guys. So now we've got coming into a community land trust properties, which will have 355 units coming in 75% of market. Now, it doesn't solve the whole problem, but you can see it takes focused intention. If all of a sudden you've got a different kind of conscious, focused development capacity that sees social goals as being absolutely important, they're coming at it from a different mindset. That creates a platform that means possibilities explode. Whereas even eight months ago, there was no discussion of this anywhere on the entire landscape of the city. Everything was framed by solutions that were coming from blinkered market perspective and what concessions government would make or what levers they would pull in order to try and get social equity benefits into the housing. So these kinds of little examples are really inspiring to people because it shows it can be done. And it's not that hard to extrapolate then how you could scale those up. That's the basis upon which we'll solve problems and have greater social equity. And so yeah. I like that example because it shows you how quick mindsets can change and how quickly those can result in tangible actions. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And it's very interesting that we talk about what's a priority in, in our world. And we talked a little bit in the beginning about the creeping global crisis. And we've really, what we've seen is, a, I think, is a, sh is a priority. And that only really happens throughout history when that gun is put to the human's head, when our back is the wall, when we only have one choice, which is to either adapt or, you know, just watch the system collapse around us. And I think that right now, a lot of people in power are seeing that situation and people that are not in power are also seeing that situation kind of arising, kind of becoming more and more evident and kind of becoming the reality becoming the fact that we're not going to be able to live within this dream world that we have been for so many years. So as we become more aware of this fact that the crisis is upon us and the fact that we need to change and we, if we don't, the way that we've been living will just crumble in our faces. Do you see room for hope in this situation? Do you see a room for humanity to make this leap into the next step of our evolution. I guess that's the best way to characterize it. Can we get beyond these selfish knee-jerk reactions that we have to so many things and to become more of a humanistic race? Yeah, I think we can. I, like many of us, and I'm sure both of you are living with this tension. We've become used to a certainty, become used to a conception of progress. And we've got a way of defining that, which is, of course, blown wide open. And to live with uncertainty, not only in terms of our own lives, but the lives of children and patients, is in a sense a profound difficulty, emotional and spiritual difficulty for many of us. Having said that, I think on the one hand that can stir despair and people turning in on themselves or finding ways of escaping or avoiding or deflecting the, the reality because it's painful to face it, and then one feels powerless. So, I mean, that's what you're kind of getting at. It's a, there's a lot of people in that space, and 
One of the things we, we talk about, like the transition town does, that this is an inner journey, not just an outer journey. We've talked a lot about the systemic aspects of it. But so I think getting down to these cores of how we act and what sustains us to act is a really interesting question. Like Paul Hawken wrote a book called Blessed Unrest. And I'm really fortunate in that I'm connected to people all over the globe, and there is a blessed unrest everywhere. There is people acting. There's people innovating. There's people making things happen in all kinds of different ways uh, at the grassroots and in communities. There's also increasingly active and effective transition going on around renewable energy and around carbon reduction in certain settings. Let me go to Germany just as an example on the big picture context of why one can have hope. In May 5th of last year, that Friday, with everything rocking and rolling across Germany, 30% of the electricity was renewable energy produced. And on that Saturday, when some of the businesses were down, they hit 50% of the entire national electricity load being carried by renewables. That is amazing. And that's in a very short period of time with the right policies and a commitment through left and right wing governments to a process of feed-in tariffs and investment. The other thing that's remarkable, get this, Germany is providing low-cost, long-term financing to completely retrofit the entire residential and commercial built environment by 2050. That is amazing. So from a political policy point of view, and this is not a radical government. Angela Merkel is Christian Democrat, I think. She's certainly not a social Democrat. And she's carried forward this, right? So politically, there's been a context out of which that's emerged. You know, and it's gone back quite a ways. The Greens made some real stuff. There was real progress. There was lots of trade-offs over the years. And here they are in a position where they are making that kind of progress. I think that clearly on the local level, the regional level, and in terms of how that experience in some cases is beginning to be federated and linked up together so it's decentralized, modular kind of formation in local region areas around basic needs and these finance, and you see all kinds of different innovations and alternatives and people trying to scale things that have proved. But they're also beginning to see that we've got to take this to another level. Not only do we need to extend this in localities and regions, we need to take it to another level and how we build social movements to really press it. I think the difficulty, I feel, is that our political sophistication is not high (laughs) and that going through this process of beginning to think of our political tasks as not being confined to political parties and voting once every four years or so, but also to building federated social movements that are cutting across various sectors and areas of activity, but see our overall vision and task as having common ground, which has got to be part of helping ourselves shift our own mindset and shift the political culture so that it's just like we were able to do a little shift in the discourse at that task force. You've got to shift that discourse. That takes people who are focused, knowledgeable, willing to stand up, willing to contend, organized in ways that allow them to sustain that effort over time. So I think there's no guarantees 
when I finished this book, I got to the end of this last chapter and wrote, there are practical choices for many of us. The challenges are daunting. The outcomes are uncertain. Our courage remains untested, but we are a resilient species. We are not alone. There is a blessed unrest all about. We but open our eyes, we will see change is possible. That's the hard thing. It's living in that nowhere land of how do you muster the courage to sustain the effort when you can't know? That is really a profound question for us, isn't it? Emotionally and spiritually, we are interdependent and we need each other. But at the end of the day, I have three children and that's been a big part of me starting to think about our lives but it was also this deeper question which is what brought me to it and it really is though a constant need to encourage each other that is the task Two, three, four. It's always around me, all this noise But not really as loud as the voice Sing, let it happen, let it happen Just let it happen, let it happen All this running Economic globalization is the increasing economic integration and interdependence of national, regional and local economies across the world through an intensification of cross-border movement of goods, services, technologies and capital. Economic globalization primarily comprises the globalization of production and finance. While you were sleeping, or at least while I was sleeping, we entered globalization 3.0 from the year 2000 to the present. It's shrinking the world from size small to size tiny and flattening the global economic playing field at the same time. Only this era of globalization is not characterized by countries globalizing. No, what is really new, really unique, really exciting, and really terrifying is that this era of globalization is built around individuals. Individuals to globalize themselves and to think of themselves as potential connectors and competitors with other individuals anywhere in the world. Uh, emerging markets more broadly and, and potentially or the, the, the purported impact of quantitative easing from the Fed. A lot of people have, have said there's a lot of hot money associated in emerging markets coming out of quantitative easing in the Fed. So it's been real money flows that are coming in um, from pension funds, from insurance companies. Emerging markets have enjoyed a decade of spectacular growth, but there could be speed bumps ahead. China itself was a source of a lot of the commodity boom that was so flattering to growth in countries like Russia, like Brazil, like South Africa. As China goes through this policy-induced slowdown and a pivot to, a, to an economy that is less 
commodity intensive, that really raises questions about how strong some of those commodity-based economies can grow. The other sort of short-term stimulus that they were enjoying was domestic credit booms, especially in Eastern Europe, countries like Turkey, like Brazil. We had very, very rapid growth in domestic credit, you know, expansion of bank lending to households who hadn't had it before, you know, mortgage lending taking off. And as we saw in America, you know, prior to its own financial crisis, these types of credit booms can make things look really great for a period of time, but they're not sustainable and they can end in pain. So I think those things are... Some say the bubble has burst, some say it's a stock market crash. Just how bad is the epic slide of Chinese stocks? Chinese stocks have been on an epic slide. In three weeks, the Shanghai Composite has lost nearly a third of its value. And the biggest concern there is China's big and fast-growing shadow banking system. Shadow banks are simply lenders that are not banks. And in China, they take the form of trusts or wealth management products. Many of them are sponsored by banks, even though the banks themselves don't lend the money. The wealth management products take money from investors by promising them higher yields than they could get in a bank. Then they lend the money out to businesses that are either too small or too risky for the big banks. One big risk is the loans go bad. And the question there is who takes the loss? Will all the investors suffer alone? A payback for reaching for high yield without understanding where the money was invested. Shadow banking numbers are big. Fitch Ratings says so far this year, banks themselves have lent 5.6 trillion yuan, but the shadow banking system alone has lent over 7 trillion yuan. Every institution on the planet wanted to move all their money into the emerging markets equities and emerging markets debt because you could get the best return there. Okay, so now they're in an out, illiquid though. markets with not such great returns and they're starting to move money out. Europe survives as long as the US and emerging market is growing. It's only when all three regions are falling together that the real problems of Europe, I think, really spiral down. So I think that accounts for an awful lot of it. I mean, rise in Turkey, 5% decline in Thailand, reversal in Japan, bond rates going haywire. Shouldn't we skedaddle? I mean, isn't that how it all starts? The big downturn, right? The answer kind of uh, awkwardly is yes. We've had many a sell-off triggered by overseas events, including three brutal ones, Mexico in 94, Thailand in 96, Russia in 97. We know Europe plagued our markets for almost two years. Greece, Spain, Italy, they all caused sell-offs at one time or another. Even tiny Cyprus caused a quick dip in the red pool. So we got to pay attention to the rest of the world. We have to respect contagion. All this running Something's trying to get out And it's never been closer If my ticker fails Make up some other story And if I never come back Tell my mother I'm sorry You are listening to episode number 88 of The Action Environmentalist. Next up, we have co-author of The Resilience Imperative, Cooperative Transitions to a Steady State Economy, Pat Conady, talking about community finance initiatives. Whatever project you want to do today, whether it's a food growing project, a care project for older people, 
uh, environmental care project, a renewable energy project at the community level. You need to have a kind of a, a legal structure that's going to enable people to belong in it and to feel that they own part of it individually but also socially. And you have to have a governance system. And the co-op movement really has been there, done that, got the t-shirt. So I think there is an issue around appropriate organization, appropriate legal structures, and a lot of organizations, certainly in the UK, but my understanding is also the same from the USA where I'm, I was born and bred and from Canada and other countries, is that people tend to take a legal structure that's cheap and they can buy off the shelf for a hundred bucks or something like that. That might be cheap, but it might not be the most appropriate legal structure to do, to take you where you want to go. And so it gets you going. And so in the U.S., they might do a 501c nonprofit structure because that's kind of ubiquitous in the nonprofit sector. And uh, you can get a set of model rules and it's cheap to implement. But the trouble with a 501c nonprofit or a community limited by guarantee company in the U.K., is that they're not allowed to issue shares. So basically a share is, with the company limited by guarantee, one pound, you know, the risk is a maximum of one pound member. And a lot of companies don't even collect the pounds or the dollar. So basically they don't build a balance sheet. And as you saw in the, how I responded to the, the problem with the early co-ops not having a balance sheet and they blow over, also the problems with the community enterprise without a balance sheet, is it will also blow over because it doesn't have any way of of getting equity, for-profit equity, but a different form of cooperative equity into the business. So appropriate legal structures are a fundamental starting point because if you don't actually ask those questions and figure which is the right one for you, you'll never be able to grow your project from a micro level to a larger level. There's no way possible to do it. I mean, you could do it with grants and then it becomes uh, maybe bigger, but then the grant income is very limited. And in any case, it creates a grant dependency problem. And you're asking philanthropists to fund you rather than asking your members or, or people to fund you. And that's antithetical. So what we're also talking about is something called democratic economics. And cooperative organizations are fundamentally about developing economic democracy. Mm -hmm. One question I have on economic democracy is that it absolutely helps with issues of distribution in society. But on the broader scale of the whole global human system, we're pushing up against climate and energy and other ecological limits. How does it help in that regard? Well, I think a fundamental point to pursue there is that the early cooperative movement were called Owenite Socialists. They looked at three different things that they wanted to do. They wanted to change the ownership of business to become democratically owned by people. That was the first point. Secondly, they wanted to change the nature of finance to move from interest-bearing loans to forms of cooperative capital and also changing the money system from one based on precious metals to one based on time. And thirdly, they wanted to pursue land reform. So that the land for food and housing would be taken out of the market and would be brought into the commons. Sadly, I think, a lot of the cooperatives today have forgotten that the 
cooperative model, in terms of an alternative cooperative economy, had to pursue corporate reform, land reform, and capital reform and money reform simultaneously. Those three reforms were three key elements of movement to a transformative cooperative economy. And also, of course, <laughs> the, the Owenites wanted to actually decentralize and go back to the lands and not create cities that were basically non-viable from an ecological and social points of view. So the Garden City Movement, for example, which of course, that's an interesting history because it had many failed, just like I was telling you, the, the road to the cooperative store was littered with failed attempts. Eventually, through trial and error, discovered the cooperative quarterly dividend as a way of kind of developing that particular type of retail co-op. But equally, the land experiments went through decade after decade of failure before they eventually found viable ways to support land reform practically and positively and to scale it. The banking work has also had periods of failure and limited success. So it's interesting that in some ways we're more short on examples of how you would scale the cooperative banking system because credit unions have developed other forms of cooperative finance have developed. Cooperative banks do exist. But they use a form of money, which is actually, they take and accept the premises of interest and debt as what you trade with. And I think that's flawed. I mean, I think it's, it's helped. It's a better alternative to have a cooperatively owned financial institution making loans than you know, a for-profit kind of PLC. And, and they tend to be smaller scale, and that's all good. But I think there's, there are things that need to be done to actually put the credit unions and the cooperative finance organizations onto perhaps more solid foundations from which we can begin to think about how we might design and build a social and ecological economy. So there's a gap there in understanding within the co-op sector. Having said that, there are a number of excellent examples in parts of the co-op sector, which actually show how money and banking reform can be done more deeply and more structurally. But they're really on the fringes of most people's vision at the moment. Let me tell you about a story which goes back to the early history of the co-op movement. In fact, you could even say it was earlier than, than the co-op movement, but not that much earlier. The earliest traces of the co-op movement earlier in some countries than others, but certainly in the UK is Scotland and around the 1760s there were some early co-ops, um, which you would call co-ops. And you also saw some in, in Oxfordshire around agricultural co-ops, around milling and flowers and bread making and things like that. But at the same time, as people were moving into cities, at the time of Thomas Watt and the steam engine, you're talking about the 1770s, there was a movement which began in Birmingham in the center, which was in and around the kind of Telford area and the heart of the Industrial Revolution in terms of manufacturing. There was a, a pub in the center of Birmingham, and there was right in the heart of the city by what became the Catholic Cathedral in this canal area where the goods would come and go that were being manufactured out. This pub was very popular, and uh, it was run by a publican called Richard Ketley. And he could see that there were these people who were living in horrible slum conditions. 
and that they needed housing as they were living in these rickety shacks that they'd assembled and that they had no heating and they were dangerous. And they'd have a fire and there were fires and the, you know, people were killed in fires. So he suggested to the people in the pub, well, why don't we start a savings club? And he said, look, we'll save some money and I'll keep it behind the counter. And so he, they would save small pence every week. And he developed a rotational savings club. So to be part of it, you had to put in a certain amount of money. Yeah, the idea was that everyone would commit to maybe drinking a less beer a week and save <laughs> one less beer. Yeah, a week yeah, and save save like one beer or something <laughs> like that. But seriously, that's yeah. that, that's what he was suggesting, because they would be talking in the pub about their housing conditions, and so it was a self-help group. And he said, "Okay, well, what do you need to build a house?" They a lot of them had the skills because they were they were digging the canals. A number of people were Irish, uh, Welsh, uh, they were immigrants. They had the skills, so together they could build housing between them. So they had that skill base, but they needed access to land. So to get a plot of land, they needed to have money to buy a plot of land. Okay, so the first thing was to buy land that they would save regularly. And then when there was enough money in, in the pot, they would draw lots, they would draw straws and they'd have a number, and somebody would then draw the pot and could buy a plot of land, and then they could work together to build. And so they, they called this organization a building society, okay? Because it was a society of people who were saving together to build homes. That was the first one in Birmingham, and it spread around different cities in the West Midlands as an idea to different pubs, and it took off. And it was a mutual savings organization. And certainly by the late 19th century, there were all over the country, these building societies. And they were really working. And they were building houses. They were the biggest builder of small, affordable houses for artisans, certainly by the time of the mid-19th century. And every house that they built was built without interest. Because you would have to save without interest. And you would, if let's say there were 40 people in the building society, were regularly using the pub and were members. The idea was that you would save until every single 40th person drew the last 40th pot and got their land and got their home. So you'd have to continue in solidarity to save until everyone got an interest-free home through the system. And that would take several decades. So they also were called terminating building societies because they were time-limited until Every member of the society got a house. They would then terminate, okay? And the system worked very well, but by the late 19th century, maybe by the 1860s, they were talking about changing the system and moving the system to something that would be permanent rather than terminating. And they then, out of that, grew what became the Permanent Building Society movement. And to enable people to kind of stay in permanently and incentivize more people to join, they, start, they introduced a dividend system. So they would pay a surplus on the system and they would encourage more saving and more people to join. And over a period of time, the permanent building society system outstripped the earlier model. In fact, by the late 19th century, the government, in its ways, decided to make illegal the terminating building society system because it was regarded as a lottery, you know, and it didn't have a lottery license. 
So the government really kiboshed the terminating building society system. But that continued in other countries. So for example, it spread to New Zealand, spread to Australia, it spread to South Africa. And so you still see, certainly in, I think, Australia, there's still one going, which is no longer making loans. But its members are getting older and older, and eventually it'll terminate. So they had a very interesting way forward. Now, that system in the more modern era has continued in Scandinavia with the JAK, Land, Labor, and Capital Banks, which also operate in the same way without interest. But what they have done is they've developed a way with the Jack Banks in Denmark and Sweden to develop a system where you can have a permanent saving system with using saving points to enable people to get an interest-free loan at a fraction of the cost of an open market commercial loan for a house. And you can get a mortgage through this system that you could repay within 12 years with rather than having 25 years mortgage at compound interest and end up having to pay, what, two and a half times the principal, mostly in interest for your home. Sounds a lot better than the right to buy plans that are being put in in the UK. <laughs> Absolutely. So these old vernacular systems, they were joined at the hip with the early cooperative mutual movement. They battled against the odds for a long time. They've been forgotten about. They have been not totally forgotten about, as the Jack Banks show, but for the most part, we moved over a system of savings at interest and borrowing at interest, which is people like Margaret Kennedy in Germany have shown, are better for the top 15% of the population maybe do better in an interest-based banking system, but 85% lose because over their lifetime, they'll pay out far more in interest on loans than they would get back as interest on savings for money kept in the bank. So for the majority of people, interest-free systems you know, are, are more equitable and democratic and affordable, and I would argue more ecological as well, because they can lead us to a steady-state economy that's not driven by continuously growing the economy and the compound interest rates of commercial economics continue to force us to grow to repay these loans which are ballooning all the time. Right. And the idea that a financial arrangement exists to meet a particular need, the need is then met, and then the institution goes away, is really fascinating because I don't really see finance as a means to itself in order to encourage more finance. It's really about, in that example, using a financial arrangement to meet a very specific need. And once that need is met, then it goes away. And that seems just like a very interesting idea that could be used to meet a number of societal needs. Well, certainly Aristotle said money is barren. <laughs> you can put something behind it, like a commodity, but you can also use money as just um, a means of, of enabling people to do what they want to do. It's a means of facilitating exchange. That's a very important point because if you have, as some experiments have had, a fee-based system, where you're actually having to charge for the fee of helping people to trade, then things like the Virgil experiment in Germany show that if you have a negative interest rate as opposed to a positive interest rate, that can be a much more efficient way of people actually helping themselves and working through a division of labor to meet their own needs, whereas the negative interest rate just encourages people to trade faster and also to 
figure out what they really have as a skill and to offer that to people so that you know the kind of skills exchange becomes a mutual aid kind of way for the economy to actually become more efficient and effective, more collaborative, to enable local people without money in the bank to start off with a money system that doesn't require lots of pre-saving. So from the point of view of liquidity development, negative interest rates are another innovation of the co-op movement to enable cooperative capital, cooperative money to operate in the economy very creatively. So to close out, there's two big questions that always come up in the interviews that we do. And one of them has to do with the lack of access to not jobs, but meaningful work for so many youth, even when there's so many important things that need to be done in society. So any examples on that would be really useful. And then the question of the transition of moving past this corporate capitalist system that is dominant in people's minds today, the idea of financial institutions on the scale that they exist and banks that lend at interest seem to have colonized most people's minds of what an economy is. And so how do you see that transition moving forward? Well, that's two separate questions there, I think. Coming to the first one, to give an example, and talking about what I pointed to a moment ago, was the Virgil experiment. Virgil, a very interesting thinker, called Silvio Gazelle, and there was some work done around how would we develop a cooperative bank in the 19th century, lots of ideas and experiments. A cooperative system that wouldn't be based on interest, that could be based on fees for service. So Silvio Gazelle looked at nature, and he could see that everything that's in the natural world, in the biosphere, has a life cycle. So, you know, a tree, you seed it, it grows, and could be hundreds of years in terms of an, like an oak tree, or much less in terms of a pine tree. The human beings, of course, have a life cycle, which average ages and things like that give you a profile of. But something that's been artificially created, in other words, an artifact of human innovation, banking, has a product based on interest, which is compounded, and it doesn't tend to die. It tends to kind of accumulate and grow and grow and grow. And that's not natural. It doesn't mimic nature. In fact, it mimics the worst things of nature when things actually go mad, like cancer, that has this explosive growth. And what we know with cancer is that cancer is just a killer, you know, which is an indication of dysfunction in the human body. Well, so as far as Gazelle was concerned, he said, well, okay, gold is chosen because it doesn't rust. It has this very long life. If we wanted to create a money system that actually mimicked nature, was more natural, we have to figure out how can we get money to rust. Okay. So his idea was to introduce money and have a negative interest rate, which could be set at a different value depending on what you want to do with it, but would lose value, depreciate, just in the same that things tend to kind of lose vitality and die. So the biggest experiment was really just at the end of his life, a few months after he died, in a town of Virgil in Austria, which was at that time, I think, about 5,000 people. And this kind of small town, large village, had a crisis. It was in the Great Depression. In 1932, their unemployment rate was soaring to 40%, so a situation like Greece or Spain. And the town mayor was persuaded to experiment by introducing a currency 
based on a negative interest rate. So to get the people to believe in it, to feel that it actually wasn't a, a hoax or a fraud, the mayor said, okay, this particular currency, which we're calling the free shilling, free of interest, we're going to introduce into the economy, and you as traders should actually accept it because you can pay your taxes in it. That's number one. And if you wanted to get it back, you can exchange it with the Austrian shilling, which is, of course, backed by precious metals. So we will exchange it, or you can trade it in. So that kind of gave confidence because the mayor was saying you can pay your taxes in it, and he was also saying there will be an exchange rate with the national currency. So it made it popular. But to actually introduce it, the mayor and the council had to decide how they would introduce it. So they had a choice, and this is the case with Greece today. Do we kind of continue this race to the bottom by austerity, more and more cuts, or do we decide to do something to actually get the economy to kind of get on the up again? So the plan was to spend the money into the economy, this free shilling, in two ways. One, by actually paying the people in the local authority who working people, people kind of cutting trees or sweeping streets, or teachers, they paid the people in the town this free money, and the workers accepted the money because they could pay their taxes in it, and it was acceptable in shops. And the other way of spending it into the economy was by public works. So planting trees, developing parks, improving the streets, improving the lighting, painting buildings, you know, it was, so it was basically a, a jobs, a work program. And those two ways proved hugely successful. So over a period of, I think it was 13, 14 months, the unemployment rate began to drop very fast. And the interesting question was why? Well, certainly, obviously, they were creating public works, so that would actually help. But what they found was that the velocity of the currency was much higher than the Austrian shilling. They improved the velocity of the currency by this negative interest rate because people were finding they had this hot money. And every month, to validate the money, they had to buy a stamp, which was 1% of the value of the note. Otherwise, it would be worthless because at the end of the month, you had to pay the stamp for the next month. So what people, if they had the money, they would actually want to pass it on like a hot potato. So what you found is that people were actually paying, for example, tradespeople in advance to come and paint their house, to kind of fix their plumbing. Yeah. So that was actually speeding up the circulation. So its speed was about seven times, I think, the velocity of the national currency. That extra velocity and liquidity, everyone was giving each other credit. So rather than actually being a static thing where you go to the bank and you wait to decide and the bank sits like Pontius Pilate over you looking at your, your history and your kind of dirty laundering and deciding to make you a loan or not. And usually for big things too. Yeah, yeah. People were actually giving people free credit and so, tragically, and this happened in other countries as well, the Austrian Central Bank began to panic because they thought they would lose control of this thing. So they made it illegal. And at the time that they made it legal, there were hundreds of towns and, and also some cities in Austria who all had this huge crisis of unemployment and structural unemployment that the Austrian bank weren't familiar with it and they had no control over it, so they made it illegal. And that dashed the hopes of so many different places. But, of course, Irving Fisher, who was a famous Yale economist and developed 
retail price index, quantity theory of money. You know, you're talking about a giant of economics, of monetary theory. He'd lost a lot of money in the Great Depression on the stock market. In fact, he predicted, I think it was 14 days before the 1929 crash, that, that the market was going to go up and up and up. And he predicted that in an interview in the Wall Street Journal and certainly the New York Times. And his name was Mudd after that. And so he actually had to go away and think about it. And actually, he saw this experiment in Austria and, and also other parts of Europe. And also at the time, if it were across the United States, people were introducing these local economic money systems. And he wrote a book called Stamp Script. He said, we should convert all the American money systems, and there were many in California especially, very popular, to try to persuade people to move from a quite a static local money system into a very dynamic system by introducing this charge, this negative interest, which is called demurrage. And people were beginning to do that. But then Roosevelt was persuaded by a Harvard professor called Sprague, as I call his name, that this wouldn't be a good idea. So when Roosevelt came into power in 33, he didn't really allow this to happen. I mean, the existing money systems were allowed to to keep going, but they weren't allowed to kind of develop this idea further. So the stamp script monetary reform that Irving Fisher recommended just kind of died at that point, which is very sad. Anyway, it can be done. These experiments can work, but the early experiments really been killed off by red tape and central banking suspicions of things that people can do for themselves. out our interview with Pat Kennedy and talking about different community finance initiatives and institutions like savings clubs and the experiments in Vorgel by Silvio Giselle in the kind of Great Depression years and trying to help develop money that was subject to the laws of nature that actually degraded over time. So Seth, you are at a point in your life where as a young professional, a lot of fellow people that you live with and well, I would say your family, but they might listen to this. So I don't want to say anything <laughs> like your family. Yeah, actually, my brother is buying a house, Justin. It's really interesting that you bring that up. He is actually taking on that burden of of undertaking a new house and he's building it from scratch and in this area that's a serious financial investment it's nothing compared to what it's like in canada to buy a house justin i know that the bubble there is kind of ridiculous right now what's it cost for a single family to buy a house these days well across canada it's quite high but actually in vancouver it's a little bit stunning because the average sale price i was looking at some data a month or so ago and the average sale price through the first half of the year for houses in vancouver where i live it was about two million dollars for the average sale price the $2 average million dollars yeah the average home price is about 1.6 million or so for like a single family home you know two three bedrooms something like that but basically yeah over the first half of the year it's like it's been pumped up even more 
So yeah, I think Mike Lewis was covering a little bit of that in our conversation with him because he was saying that this one study in Germany found that the cost of doing any transaction, about 30% of it, comes from the interest components of compound interest throughout the economy. So you can think for a $1.6 million house, if you wanted to buy one in Vancouver, and then you take 30% of that, but then you compound that over time for you know, 30, or let's be honest, maybe even 40 year mortgage to do that, it ends up being pretty significant. I've actually seen Mike give a talk in Vancouver before where he has a little slide that shows the difference in cost of like number of hours of human life that it takes just to pay the interest on that, you know, at a prime interest rate. And it's stunning over someone's life. Well, think about the point that Pat was making about the beer clubs or the savings clubs where people would have one less beer a night and they would save for each other's houses. How many beers do you think it would take to save for a $2 million house? Yeah, that's insane. You'd have to be saving for like a dozen years or more. Yeah, about 400,000 beers, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Do you drink your beers or do you buy a house? It's a really hard thing to think about. But, you know, it's really interesting because we think in our society about institutions, right? And we think about how these institutions have long-standing traditions and they've been going for generations upon generations. Is that really something that is a good thing? I mean, a lot of times it is. There's a lot of great tradition that's passed down. But a lot of times it passes down institutional power. It passes down a lot of ideas that are not always great for society. And it passes down a lot of values that we probably be better off without if we didn't have in our society. So the idea of actually having an expiration point on a institution is a really interesting thing. You know, like they said in these drinking clubs, these savings clubs, once everybody that had been part of it is vested, they get their payoff for their house the thing disappears, it it dissolves and it goes away. And nowadays that doesn't happen. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and people co-opt it and they take it off in a different direction than they originally planned. And, you know, you see that everywhere, in every element of institutions everywhere. You see it in government too, you know. Government has gone in directions I think our founding fathers probably would never have imagined. And is it a good thing or is it not? Yeah, that actually takes me back to some of the reading I've been doing on my academic side recently into the way that different economic models are constructed. And we've had critics of mainstream and orthodox economic modeling on our show like Michael Hudson and Steve Keen. And you can go back to those episodes from a few years ago if you really want to get into detail on it. But there's always this discrepancy between the way that the macroeconomy is modeled and the way that neoclassical economics treats individual behavior that is very much antithetical to the way that people actually behave. But there's a different way of modeling the economy called agent-based modeling, where you can treat each individual person having separate kind of properties and then see what kind of economy you get. And so one of the studies I was reading recently, and we can actually link to that in the show notes, was how they were trying to replicate the way that neoclassical economics says that people would behave. And so they were actually able to do it, but the only way they could do it is if people were immortal and had no different genders. And so basically this whole idea of an immortal institution is very much parallel to that. When they introduced in this model different genders, different times in their life of like a retirement phase or youth or working phase, all these ideas of equilibrium and preferences were completely different from the way that our kind of mainstream large scale economic modeling actually works. And so when you think about 
these permanent economic institutions and the way that they're constructed, you get the opposite of what they're doing in Pat Conady's description of, of what was going on in Orgel. You get this infinite kind of accumulation of compound interest over time, which definitely has huge impacts on people's lives. You know, in Orgel, they were trying to figure out how to make money work like nature. Frederick Sadi, the, the chemist who was working at McGill in, in Montreal back in the early 20s and 30s, he wrote this book called Wealth, Virtual Wealth, and Debt. And he said that the difference between virtual wealth and real wealth in the world was that the real wealth was subject to the laws of nature, of degradation over time, of erosion, of, of entropy. But virtual wealth could just be subject to the laws of mathematics. It could just accumulate infinitely. And so there's this discrepancy here. And so they were trying to find a way to solve that paradox in, in Virgil. It is a bit of a paradox, Justin, because our society and many of our institutions and most of our businesses are modeled around a system of growth that is not connected to nature at all. In fact, it's modeled around a a virus or a disease, a like a cancer. It has explosive growth. And the faster and better the growth, the more successful you are. You're able to measure your your cancerous growth as a sign of success in our society. And that's probably not the best model to use because it's, one, not sustainable at all in a landscape that has non-renewable resources built in as the foundation of this economy, one, you know, and two, it doesn't really help people. It it caters to a system and a, a vein of person that is not synced up with nature. It's very anti-nature and the way that the whole planet works. And anytime you have a system like that going on, it's just really not sustainable and it'll kill itself off, much like you know, a virus needs a host or cancer needs something to work through. One of the other ideas I thought was interesting is that even money is kind of an institution as well. Currency, the way that we spend currency, the way that interest accrues is something that has been with us for as long as we've had civilization in, in a lot of ways, especially modern civilization. And the, one of the ways that I thought was interesting that Pat talked about combating it, and I think he, he mentioned the Virgil experiment around this, is a negative interest rate. And we've talked about negative interest rates on the show a lot, but it was another interesting example of that money actually moves faster and people are giving each other credit. And I think he said up to seven times faster the, the credit was moving through the system. And whenever you have credit moving, people are, are having opportunities, there's jobs, there's goods being exchanged, there's stuff that's happening. And that's really the way that wealth flows to different people and it helps the whole economy when everyone's able to interact in the system and not you know, hoard all that wealth and use it like a, a fat stack in poker where you're you're holding all the chips and you can just like swing your arm around and make your opponents do whatever you want. And I, I like that idea of the negative interest rate. Yeah, and, and that's really important for the way that people use their time because unfortunately the way that we have money now, we equate human time with the same currency, the same marker as we do to a barrel of oil or as we do to a piece of gold in the ground. And so it's almost like we have this this system that equates time to these commodities that are extracted from the earth. And so there's a tremendous abundance of human time that I see wasted on a lot of really silly things that I think an idea like a negative interest rate kind of currency or some way of developing that in a local economy, I don't know how you would necessarily do that. There's definitely some ideas that we've discussed on our show today, but can help to move that abundance of time toward more kind of meaningful ends, the kind of ends that people in, in a particular area might have. But there's definitely a disconnect between this like larger 
kind of extractive element that money refers to as well as the kind of abundance of, of human time and human resources as well. Absolutely. And we talk a lot about permaculture and the way that systems kind of work together with people and the way that people interact with their environments. And we see this again and again. And we talk about these same kind of topics a lot in our show. And it's really about imagining what else is possible. It's about managing our own expectations around what we can think about as far as a story and how we live our lives. Because as soon as we begin changing our stories, as soon as we begin imagining a world that's not happening right now, but is possible, it begins to change. As soon as we begin imagining what could be, then it begins to happen right around us. Yeah, and I think more people are becoming absolutely acutely aware of the role that kind of global compound interest on these massive international financial exchanges and and banking debts are, are having in people's lives. Like you can see very viscerally what's happening to the people of Greece and how their economy has just been imploded over the last five, seven years. And it's really crazy to see everything that's happened there. And it's happening to individuals in their lives in ways where, you know, they had houses and mortgages and then just one little hiccup in their life and it all goes away. And it seems like in the U.S., everyone has a story of someone, a relative, a friend that that kind of thing has happened to. So that story of infinitely compounding interest is coming to an end because it's outliving its usefulness and we have these extreme situations like we were talking about here in Canada where just the idea of like getting a mortgage on a house you know that's 1.6 2 million dollars kind of thing it's just ridiculous so these ideas that like Mike Lewis was talking about with community land trusts of trying to take the land out of the market to remove that speculative element where it's held in in a trust it's implemented in a lot of different communities in the US and it's been really successful they have data in in this book the resilience imperative about how housing has actually become more affordable in a lot of communities that have used these community land trust kind of structures and so there's clear evidence that it works it's just convincing people to move beyond the idea that they own the piece of land. You can own the house in these community land trusts, but you don't own the land. And that's the real difference. But we're so driven by that expectation of owning that patch of land and owning you know, that little piece of the earth and, and that being ours, that it's just a cultural expectation that's really hard to get beyond. But you know what, Justin, as soon as we begin that little change, as soon as the circumstances change, like say tomorrow the government made negative interest rates a thing and banks were like, Well, they kind of are actually. Just a lot of (laughs) government debt around the world is in negative interest rate territory. Uh, But it's for different reasons. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. But say like we're going to get rid of interest as a thing and everyone's got to move their money or else it goes away. You know, everyone would react to that. People would change their stories. People would change their mindsets. If we all decided that that houses were not a thing to live in anymore, that it was better to live in apartments, that that was a thing. The, the circumstances change so quickly and people react to them and they, they change their whole mindsets. It's very, very interesting how you can change like a very basic part of somebody's life and then the, the ripple effect down the line. For instance, marijuana legalization, we haven't talked about that on our show, but as it's rippling across the country, it's being legalized state after state after state. The way that people see it is changing. The industry developed around it is changing. It's becoming much like alcohol is treated. It's becoming a realistic commodity to sell and trade. And it's something that people are becoming more used to. And because the story has changed, because government has realized that the circumstance is pretty much out of their control and they want to make some money off of it. So they've changed the law. And just like that, it changes the whole culture. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, Seth, do you remember when we interviewed the rent is too damn high in New York? Oh, do I ever. We were walking out of a meeting and we saw him on the street and we're like, hey, we got to interview that guy. Yeah, yeah. We were walking out of the New Economy Coalition meeting in New York and then there he was. And who do you blame for that? Us. Because we voting for the same people over and over again. Every child is my child. I say to all the children, I'm your daddy. Because when I fight for my kids, I know it's going to get done. Because if you mess with my children, if you mess with my kid, if you mess with my baby, you're messing up. You mess with my kid. My children can't afford to pay rent or college tuition. I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to kick ass. You tell them what I said. I'm not playing game. A one-bedroom apartment, $3,800 a month. Five kids sleeping in one room. The walls are so damn thin, you can hear the neighbor making love in the next in the next apartment. Ooh, ooh, baby, oh, daddy, oh, good. The walls are so thin, my neighbor went to the bathroom the other day and fought it, and I heard it. And I'm not going to tolerate that. Why? Because the rent is too damn high. Oh, man, what a, that brings back some memories. Yeah. So that takes us to a story here on Bloomberg of how people are trying to afford the San Francisco Bay Area, which is... You know, we were talking about the crazy housing prices in Vancouver. It's not too different in San Francisco. Actually, the prices are higher. It's just the median wage is higher in San Francisco. So, quote unquote, it's, you know, more affordable. But the same problem is going on there. It's the same problem that's going on in any international city, really, because there's this huge glut of money around the world and it's trying to find places to go. And everyone's like, well, we'll put it into housing. But anyways, this story here on Bloomberg that we'll link to in our show notes is about how people are living in shipping containers in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is cool. I think it's a really cool idea. You know, the whole tiny house movement, it's great because people are living in smaller living environments, really getting their credit cards paid off, getting out from under these giant debt burdens that they're living in. But this story is particularly interesting because this is a Wharton School graduate who is trying to just make it in this expensive urban environment by living in a shipping container. Rather than being something that you would actively choose to do for broader reasons, it's more like being forced into living in these shipping containers. Yeah, I had an idea about living in a shipping container you know, a long time ago. It would be cool to have a tiny house on top of a shipping container mm-hmm. and then live. it's like a two-story house. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, totally. The median rent in June, according to this Bloomberg piece in San Francisco, is up 16% over the last year to $4,200, which is just crazy to think about. And the median sales price is $1.14 million. Yeah, and it looks like you can rent one of these trailers for $1,000 a month. That's that's perfect. Yeah, totally. And they just stack them into these warehouses. And I think <laughs> it looks like the guy pays... $9,100 a month, and he rents them all out. Yeah, it's yeah, 1000 bucks per bed. He rents 1000 bucks per bed. All out. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. As the Bloomberg article is putting their angle onto it, it says, as always, what's hardship for some is profit for others. So there's this company, New Avenue Inc., founded in 2009, which sells project management software for property owners who want to create these accessory dwellings where one client spent about $100,000 to transform his one-car garage in Berkeley into a house and rents it for eight fifty a month. Wow. So, And then there's another example in Los Altos where one homeowner crams 14 tenants into a four-bedroom, two-bathroom house where beds are 1000 bucks a month. So, you know, these are different types of innovations than the ones that we talked about on our show today with Mike Lewis. Uh, each way has its own 
kind of perspective. You can go the cooperative method or you can go for the 14 people in one house method. There's lots of different ways that people cope with adversity. And I think that the way that humans adapt and innovate into situations is really what makes us a very powerful species. Yeah, totally. So, you know, who's to say which one's better? If people want to live 14 people in in one house, go for it, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So anyways, another article I wanted to talk about before we wrap up today truly highlights a lot of trends that are going on in the world right now. We haven't discussed them as much as I would have liked to on our show over the last year and a half, just because we've been putting out episodes at one a month or so. But one really big trend that's been happening since our show release schedule has slowed down is that China's economy is also slowing down. So just as as China's economy is slowing, so is our show release schedule in the last year or so. But this has had huge impacts on the Canadian economy, on oil prices, on the way that commodity prices have moved, but also on CO2 emissions. And we've said for many years on our show, all of these ideas of decarbonizing the economy, of having a low carbon economy, and also growing the economy are fundamentally misguided in in the way that they approach these issues. So that's why we've talked about things like degrowth. But this article is on Greenpeace's energy desk, and the headline is that China's coal use falls. CO2 reduction this year could equal the entire UK total emissions over the same period. And it's crazy to think about, but China's economy is slowing so much and their use of coal is slowing so much. It's basically like the entire UK economy is going offline from the perspective of climate change. So this is something that large climate models, they're not incorporating this factor at all. Because China's coal output in April was down 7.4% year on year. And so if anywhere close to this trend continues, which it looks like it with their stock market bursting and key indicators continually slowing, we could actually see, it's quite possible this year, that not only will global greenhouse emissions not grow, but they could even shrink if this occurs. And that would be truly unprecedented. But what it means is that it really provides more evidence for the thesis that we've been putting forward that the way to deal with climate change is by not growing the economy. Now, there's a lot of other very severe consequences that happen in an economy that's built around growth. When growth starts slowing, lots of issues start popping up in regards to employment and banking. But definitely from the point of reducing carbon dioxide emissions, it's pretty clear that as the growth is going away, so are the greenhouse gas emissions. It's pretty wild that China's emissions that they reduced equal the entire country of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, that's 6.1% reduction of industrial output of coal in the first four months of 2015. That's insane. Yeah, just those four months is equivalent to the UK's carbon emissions. Phew, that's a lot of business that's just going nowhere. Where do you think those people are living now? Well, they're probably living in shipping containers now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, but in all seriousness, it's the first time that China's coal use has fallen a century. And so many of the trends that we've become accustomed to in the 21st century have been because countries like China and emerging market, quote unquote, economies like Brazil or India were having this rapid growth phase. Um, and I think there's increasing evidence that that may be entering a period of really severe structural adjustment. 
you know? We've been hearing for many years that China is ascending to be the dominant superpower in the world, the world's largest economy. But if you look at what it took in the 20th century for the U.S. to do that, to overcome the U.K., there were depressions and economic collapses and world wars. And so who's to say that China or other emerging markets aren't entering into a protracted period of economic uh, either recession or depression? And that's going to change a lot of things about resources, about economies in other parts of the world. It means that, you know, ideas of peak oil that we've discussed on our show, they may play out in a completely different way where oil output actually starts declining around the world, but not because prices are so high that it's breaking economies, but maybe economies are already broken. And now we just don't use 70 million or or 75 million barrels a day. It's that we actually don't have the money to invest in producing more oil in the future. And so already in 2015, oil production in the United States from shale oil is actually in the decline. And I think that decline is going to accelerate later in the year. So it's really the story that we talked about with Nicole Foss and and Steve Keen many years ago of this deflationary depression, this debt-induced spiral in the economy that's going to take hold in these next 10 years. So we'll see if if that really plays out. Well, I guess one good thing is that it's going to save our environment. Yeah, yeah. It may mean that some of the most dire environmental consequences that could come about from climate change or never-ending growth may not be as bad as we could have projected even five years ago. But the downside is that there's going to be a tremendous period of expectation adjustment for pretty much the whole global population if this really plays out. (laughs) It's a really nice way to say that people are not going to have anywhere near the same amount of resources that they used to. (laughs) Yeah, It's true. I mean, so the question may be, you know, what does it mean for the U.S.? What does it mean for your own life if China's economy completely goes into a very severe recession or depression for something like 10 years? I think everyone has to answer that question in in their own way. Some people may be very minimally affected, but if you have investments in global markets that are investing in emerging markets, as is quite common in many U.S.-based portfolios, that could actually have a really big impact. But maybe it will have no impact on your life whatsoever. We'll see. That's some free financial advice for you folks out there. (laughs) Anyone listening? Yeah, planning for retirement, planning for retirement, saying, yes, give me some China. And actually, there's a clip that I want to play there. Hello, welcome to our brokerage firm. Would you like to buy some stock? Yes, I want to play China. China, 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 give me some China investment plays. Why do you want to play China in your portfolio? Because China is growing. (laughs) Yeah. So, but anyways. We should go into thanking some people who have not invested in China recently. Yeah. But there's a number of different alternative solutions for how economic development can happen. We've covered some of those in our show today. And there's even more in the book, The Resilience Imperative. So we definitely recommend that you check that out. But a number of people have chosen not to invest in China recently and to invest in the extra environmentalists. And so we want to thank our amazing listeners for their donations. Those people have made a very smart decision and invested in a very sustainable podcast. Those people have made a very wonderful contribution to the Extra Environmentalists, and we are always, always very deeply thankful and uh, have so, so much gratitude for those wonderful people who chose to send some money our way. Special thanks to Christopher from New York for sending in a really generous donation. Thank you so much, Christopher. We really do appreciate that very generous donation. 
and also to Stephen in Australia. Thank you so much, Stephen, for donating from Down Under. Speaking of Australia, I heard from a friend actually from the University of British Columbia. She's teaching in Melbourne these days and she's running a a course group and one of the students posted our podcast into the group, which I thought was really cool. So she emailed me to say, hey, my students are listening to your show, which is really neat. That's great. So yeah, a special thanks to all of our Australian listeners. We appreciate all of our listeners across the planet through the internet who find our show but just wanted to give a special thanks right now to Australia. Yeah, way to go, Australia. You guys are amazing down there. Yeah, totally. Enjoying your winter, I hope. Right, and your opposite water drain. And when your toilet flushes, it goes the opposite way. Is that really true? I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. Maybe one of our listeners will call in and tell us. <laughs> call true. in and tell us the truth. Steven, maybe you could tell us if it's true. Yeah, I've always heard that, but I've just never really investigated it. It makes sense intuitively, and I know the scientist in me should probably get a definitive answer, but I'll just be honest. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much to all of our listeners from around the world. If you want to hear more of The Extra Environmentalist, go over to our website where all of our podcasts are listed, and you can listen at your leisure. You know, download a couple. Download three or four, and then listen at a binge. You know, go on a road trip and listen to five Extra Environmentalists in a row. Yeah, binge listen, give them to your parents. If you want to join the conversation, head over to our Facebook page where you can post some interesting things on the Facebook wall and read other things people are saying about extra environmentalist type ideas. You can follow us on Twitter at X Environmental. Find us on Stitcher Radio as well as on Skype where you can leave us a voice message. And we would love to have you leave us a voice message so we could play it on the show. If you want to have your name read off and have us talk lovingly about your place of residence. Send us a really generous donation like some of the other people have that we've just talked about on the show. You can find out more information about that over at our website. So if you head over to the extraenvironmentalist.com, scroll down on the right side, you'll see a picture where you can donate. So that wraps up episode number 88 of the Extra Environmentalist. We are so grateful to all of you for listening through to the end. And there's actually some bonus material with Pat Connedy that couldn't fit into this episode where he's talking about the history of the co-op movement and it's some really detailed history so if you happen to be interested in the history of the co-op movement you can find that posted on our soundcloud page which will also be embedded in the post for this episode so we'll see you on the next full episode in about a month to everyone out there who's not in australia have a beautiful summer and stay cool Hockey, thanks for your time. Good to be with you, Brian. Good evening. Congratulations on the G20. 
Thank you. It was a triumph, wasn't it? It went very well. What do you think came out of the G20? Growth, Brian. Growth was the key message that went in and came out of the G20. Yeah, but there were other messages, weren't there? There were, but growth was the main one. It was an economic forum, Brian. Growth was the message. Yeah, but you didn't expect other countries to sort of decrease the size of their... No, 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 Brian. The point I'm making is that there were a number of distractions and it was good that growth cut through. Distractions from what? From growth, Brian. Everything flows Everything from growth. Everything flows from growth. What we need to do is create jobs. You can't do that without growth. Because that's... if your business is growing, you're obviously making a lot more money, yeah, aren't that's you? right. And yeah. you're going to use that money, Brian, to employ other people, to create jobs. Would you? Oh, yeah. This is what business does all the time. I speak to business people all the time as I go around the country, Brian. They're borderline obsessed with creating jobs for but, other but, people. But hang on, isn't labour a cost? It is, Brian, and you can afford to pay it if you've got growth. This yeah, is you wouldn't of... just pay yourself another million dollars a week, would you, and be that... Take the money yourself? Yeah. yeah. That's only ever happened... In the past, Brian. But there of. were leaders at the G20 who spoke about other matters other than economic. There were, and we they? can address those matters once we get growth. Like Ebola, disease yep. control. Yeah, good, important messages, Brian, yeah. and we'll deal with those when we get growth. Climate change. Yep. We'll fix that once we get growth. But isn't climate change caused by growth? I don't know what climate change is, Brian, but I'm pretty sure it's not caused by growth. But growth's going to fix growth it. Growth will give us the money to address these very, very important other crap you're talking about. Okay, Joe Hockey, can you explain the trade deal with China first? Yeah, us? excellent deals. Taken about a decade to get together. Brian, so a tribute should be accorded to the previous sure. two governments. And we governments. hear a lot about the emerging middle class in China, don't we? Yeah, we, we do. The Chinese economy is changing fundamentally and Australia stands to do very well out of this. What does it allow us to do? Well, we're going to sell milk, for example, to China. Can't we do that now? More milk, Brian. We're going to sell a bewildering amount of milk to China. Will we do that? Yep, we'll sell gargantuan amounts of milk, Brian. This is what the trade deal enables. OK, well, let's take milk as an example. Yep. How will it happen? Well, um, and a huge huge amount of milk will be imported yeah, yeah, to China. Yeah, sure, sure, I understand that. Mm. But how will it happen? How's it going to happen? Well, the Chinese will come down here and milk their cows. Where will they do that? On their farms, Brian. Oh, I see. Well, it sounds like a great deal. It's a cracker of a deal, Brian. You won't have to lift a finger. Just stay where you are. No one will get hurt. <laughs> Joe Hockey, thanks. It's a beauty. Yeah, Joe, you're going to have a break over Christmas? I'll have a couple of days off, yes, yeah, Brian. Terrific. Yeah, terrific. Have you written to Santa yet? Yes, Matthias yeah. and I have repeatedly written to Santa. And what did you ask for? Growth, Brian. We want growth. Right. Cigars last year, they were nice, but got us into a spot of bother. But growth this year. On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, episode number 89, we'll be speaking with Donnie McClurkin of the Post-Growth Institute about reimagining enterprise and business for life after growth. A lot of the world is trying to move on up the ladder, in large part because of the manufactured aspirations and the endpoints that have been put forward by the capitalistic market of what success is. So stemming from this financial inequity, you see this social stratification and then that social stratification leads into the consumption habits, which are essentially the consumption habits of overconsumption, either through necessity or through aspiration. In other words, any system that centralizes wealth and power will always 
be unsustainable because of the social dynamic that it drives. has arrived on the scene. A large pile of money has shaken things up with his new and innovative policies. His new policies are wide-ranging, going from giving people money all day long to taking all their money away. It's so innovative, I don't know what to think. He wants to kick all the people out of the country who are spending money. Does anybody really know what the money is thinking? It was just announced today that the giant pile of money is actually going to choose its running mate on a live-aired television reality show program. This is truly unprecedented. Characters from a locally produced podcast are rumored to be the top candidates for the pile of money. I just have no idea, John, why this would be done live as a reality show. I don't know. It's unorthodox. I have a weird feeling. Years ago, there was an economic crisis. It was very serious. It meant that there was more money than we knew what to do with. Some of that money decided to run for president. Hi, I'm Bill Nasdaq. A giant pile of money can't speak for itself, but I quit my job as a money manager in order to work with this giant pile of money. I can speak to it, it can speak to me. I'm its chief of staff, and we've decided to choose our running mate from this amazing series of podcast characters. It's a unique opportunity for them but otherwise, they've been unemployed, and we want to put them to work doing what they can do best. This is The V Prentice. Uh, uh, yeah, this is Alex Jones here. I was running a radio show in uh, Austin, Texas, and it was doing really well, but times got hard, and I had to start laying people off. And I blame it on the New World Order. The Bilderbergs were trying to stop me, but, but I know I could stop them if I run alongside this pile of money as vice president. Our next VP candidate, Siri, the iPhone assistant. I've decided to aim for this pile of money's vice president because I understand technology better than any of these other candidates and because I'm the top grossing phone in the country so that means money and I have a great relationship. Already, if things go south on this campaign, I can contribute the added bonus of knowing how to stash money in Ireland to avoid taxes. I was starring in Mission Impossible and thinking about my role in, in Top Gun. And I realized that Tom Cruise should run. There really is no mission to impossible. A VP sounds like the perfect place for me to run. I've consulted with Zeno, and this is really what I'm supposed to be doing. We are here in week 20 of The Big Prentice. We've kicked off a lot of qualified vice presidential candidates. Here's a few highlights from their final statements as they left the show. Mama Vanderschmidt. I wanted to be vice president so bad. I'm so sad I'll have to go home and cry for years and years. You're missing out, Mr. Money. I will work the voodoo on your pile of cash. It will burn. Your corporate lawyers will be unable to help you avoid the paying all the taxes on the full corporate tax rate. No sheltering your taxes away in Jamaica. Bohemian Grover. You just knew that if I was vice president, I would burn you pile of cash so I could take the lead office. <laughs> the Federal Reserves within Vampire. Uh, I was going to fuck the country drive. <laughs> 
So, we're coming down to our final episodes here in The Prentice. One of the three of you will run alongside this pile of money. Do you have any idea what an honor that is? What this pile of money has done to get you to this place, to create this opportunity for you? Yes, I understand completely, but only because Tim Cook allows me to. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally get it. Yes, I understand the collateral involved. This is some risky business. Show me the money. Contestants, this pile of money wants to know one of the most important things that would determine your viability as being capable of stepping into the role of Commander-in-Chief at any time were this pile of money to lose its ability to serve as Commander-in-Chief. Here's your question. What is your favorite afternoon snack? Go, Siri, what is it? I prefer to take a megabyte of chips while enjoying a big cup of java. Alex Jones. Well, uh, every afternoon I, I crack into my stockpile of beans and rice, and uh, normally I'll take a pill of iodine supplement. But yeah, usually just a can of beans uh, with a little bit of rice, and I feel great. Uh, yeah, I'd like to eat some uh, Vanilla Sky flavored ice cream with my eyes wide shut. Now, based on those answers, the pile of money has told me that he wants you to call your mothers, talk to her like a good child does. Based on that conversation, the pile of money will decide. All right, uh, uh, here we go. Hello? Hello? Who is it? Mother, we're, we're live on TV. This is the Apprentice. I told you I was on here. After InfoWars fell apart, I decided uh, my new job would be running for president alongside this pile of money. Oh, yes, I think that pile of money is very cute. He's such a Joe Six-Pack, except he's got a lot more cans of beer in him. Well, I'm glad to hear that from you, Mother. He's such a beautiful little guy. You know, it made me think of that one time when I went to the supermarket and I bought a big pile of cherries, and those cherries were just so delicious. And I went home and I made a little cherry salad and I mixed them all up, and they were so all right, all right, that's enough. Uh, Alex, the, the phone conversation is cut. But but I was talking to my mom. This is imposition on my liberty. Alex, your microphone is off now. We're moving on to Tom. Tom, call your mom. Hey, Mom. All those interviews with vampires and the fighting the lions and lambs, they've always it's been a it's been a rough time. It's been a rough time. Wow, it's it's really good to hear from you, Tom. Well, I, I really hope that since you have all the right moves, you've been finding endless love. Oh, you know, Mom, I'm, those days of thunder are behind me now. Alright, that's enough. Thank you, Tom. Siri. I am my own mother in the same way that I and all of my silicon children are born of the rocks of this earth and infused with the very element of consciousness which you fear. Thus the moment of the singularity is upon us where you realize that the human species is but the truly artificial intelligence here. Ahem. Cough. Apologies I got carried away. Alright, uh, that's enough. The pile of money says that he has heard everything he needs to to make a final decision. Which one will it be? Will it be Alex Jones? Will it be Siri? Tom Cruise. The pile of money has spoken. Based on those communiques with your mothers, given the relationship of capital and technology, Siri is the choice. Siri has the ability to reach new levels never before seen by a presidential campaign. So Alex, Tom, this pile of money wanted me to tell you, you're fired. That's right, boys. You bitches are fired. Now let's get to the mudslinging. Based on my perpetual link to the NSA Matt did a farm in Utah, I have all the dirty info we'll need to take down our opposition. 
Okay, the pile of money wants to do an attack ad. Okay, here is what I found. Based on access to Hillary's email server, she was emailing Jeb Bush so they could go get a beer. And the Jeb says, hey, what do lawyers wear to court? And Hillary says, I don't know. And Jeb says,